0: What amuses me about George W.P. Hunt is that he could be something of a waffler. I admit that it may have only been an affectation, but the bald, rotund, inarticulate politician often kept people guessing whether he was going to seek a certain office or not. In his letters to his wife and others, he would dissemble, hem and haw, and sometimes claim outright that he wasn't interested in running. But time after time, he would finally relent to the calls of friends and colleagues to run, and time and time again he would be elected. So, in a letter to his wife, Duet, in August 1911 about a potential run, when he wrote how much he dreaded, quote, the abuse and vilification that will be heaped upon my head, end quote, he followed it up a little later with, I think it is not worthwhile. However, the actual end of that sentence was, quote, I think it is not worthwhile, but to stay out now would place my friends in an embarrassing situation. Quote. Later that same month, he cautioned his wife in a letter to not say that he was sure to be elected to the seat that he had decided to seek, because it could prove to be embarrassing if he wasn't. Though he had made his mind up about running, he still said the thought of the interest that would be stirred up to defeat his bid made him feel like quitting. A few days later, he carried on in the same vein, writing, quote, I dread the next few months, for I know the campaign is going to be a most bitter one, and there is going to be so much mudslinging that it makes me sick to think of it, End quote. As I said, it might have all been an act, but the fact was that Hunt pushed whatever doubts or fears he had aside and made history, at least Arizona history, in the process. And that's today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. (music) Episode 168, A Democratic Landslide. Welcome back, everyone. Last time, we finally reached that momentous milestone of statehood after a years-long journey through the Amerindian, Spanish, Mexican, and American eras of Arizona's history. But now that Arizona has been accepted into the Union, it's time to wrap up anything lingering from the territorial period and tackle the matter of what kind of state it was going to become. However, before we get into all of that, I need to take a step back and issue a small correction from our last episode. You might recall that I cast a little bit of shade on state historian Marshall Trimble's noting that the news of Arizona's statehood flashed over the telegraph wires at 8:55 a.m. on February 14, 1912. At the time, I was trying to reconcile that with historian Jay Wagner's information that Taft had signed the proclamation at 10:02 a.m. Eastern Time. Since the signing was the most important part of that event, and I frankly wasn't entirely sure what time zone Arizona belonged in at the time, daylight saving not being a thing yet, it seemed that the figure must be wrong, because either Arizona had to wait a good amount of time for someone to tell them the deed was done, or they somehow got word of it before the signing had actually happened. However, upon a second review, I found that Wagner also mentions the 8.55 AM time, and that Arizona was considered part of what we know today as the mountain time zone, so it seems like they did simply have to wait nearly an hour before someone decided to give them the heads up. Knowing this era, it was probably held up by some serious glad-handing and speech-making. So, my apologies to Trimble for my incredulity of your facts. Arizona did learn of its new status as a state at 8.55 a.m. Okay, with that small bit of minutia that really no one would have called me on, out of the way, we can get back to the business at hand. What exactly happened on February 14th to mark the transfer from territory to state? As I mentioned in episode 166, there were no territory-wide elections in 1910, and all presently constituted officials were held over as everyone knew that statehood was just around the corner, so no sense changing horses yet. In the latter half of 1911, when it was clear that President Taft would just sign off on the Arizona Constitution if voters in the proposed state took out that nasty little provision about judicial recall, Governor Richard E. Sloan called for elections for state officers. Primaries were held on October 24th, and a general election on December 12th. But as can be expected, the political parties were discussing their candidates well before that. We're going to ignore the Republicans for the moment because, as we'll see, at this point in history, they were simply ignorable. That means it's time to look again at the Democrats, who really have been at the levers of power over the last few years. In July 1911, George W.P. Hunt, former president of the Constitutional Convention, met in Bisbee with other leading local Democrats to discuss the good of the party. A reporter mentioned to him during this conference that he had heard that Hunt wanted the governor's seat, a comment that made Hunt chuckle, but not actually comment on. The truth was that Hunt had come to the decision to run for governor during his tenure in the Territorial Assembly but he was too slippery a politician to let that leak out before he wanted it to. Someone who didn't wait was Thomas Whedon, publisher of the Arizona Blade Tribune in Florence, who had his paper announce on September 2nd that he would be throwing his hat into the ring for the Democratic Party's nomination for governor. You may have noticed that Whedon's name keeps popping up in our story at odd intervals. I first introduced him as the intrepid newspaper man ready to do anything to take down James Addison Rivas, but since then he has introduced a bill in the territorial legislature to abolish the Arizona Rangers, fought against Phoenicians trying to steal a dam away from the Gila Valley, and now is running for governor. Just so we have a better view of the man, I turn to early state historian James H. McClintock, who tells us that Whedon had been born in Missouri in 1854 and quickly went into journalism, working for and establishing papers in Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Tennessee, and Colorado. He was lured out to Arizona, Tombstone particularly, in 1880 because of an interest in mining, but by 1881 he was running the Tribune in Florence, just in time for Rivas to come onto the scene and run headlong into Whedon's forceful denunciations. Whedon would be appointed clerk of the U.S. court, which took him out of the newspaper business for some years, but after 1900, he established in Florence a newspaper called The Blade, and then bought the Tribune, creating the Blade Tribune. In addition to his business interests, he would also become a force in politics, becoming Florence's first mayor, serving in several territorial legislatures, and as a Pima County supervisor. McClintock says he was instrumental in having the state prison relocated from Yuma to Florence, as well as seeing that schools and cement bridges were built around the town. A good orator with a forceful personality, he championed the progressive constitution that had been created in Phoenix, Though he made sure to say in his campaign literature that he felt that corporations must be regulated and controlled, not destroyed. This seems to be enough to have positioned himself as a less extreme Democrat than Hunt, who was well known for his screeds against corporations. Funny enough, even Hunt's hometown paper, The Globe Silver Belt, supported Whedon, declaring that he, quote, writes and speaks good English, accomplishments that, while not wholly essential to honesty and clear thinking, are nevertheless graces that will benefit a man who undoubtedly will become chief magistrate of the great state of Arizona." Quote. It should be pointed out that the Silver Belt's fixation on Whedon's ability to write and speak good English was actually a slap at Hunt, who was self-educated and not a polished speaker. Hunt, who had been out of the territory when Whedon made his announcement, returned to Arizona to consider how he wanted to play his next move. Finally, he made his own announcement on September 21st, with a brief statement made in Globe that heralded his role in crafting the Constitution and made the argument that he was needed to make sure the progressive parts of that document were actually enacted. And I just have to editorialize here to say that he made this announcement just a little over a month before the primary election. In our modern day, when it seems that election cycles get longer and longer, there's something refreshing about that. Hunt again took on the role of champion of the people fighting special interests, railing against corporations whom he would dub skunks and coyotes by the end of the campaign. He also rallied people behind the Constitution, pledging, among other things, to make sure that judicial recall would be added back in once Arizona was a state. And just because I love the snarky journalism of the time, I'll add that after a campaign stop in Phoenix, while Ringling Brothers had also been in town, the Arizona Republican reported, quote, The Honorable GWP Hunt is in town today, and so is the other circus, end quote. When the primary finally came around, Hunt would end up beating Whedon 5,241 votes to 3,532, with a late conservative contender grabbing 960 votes. Hunt would carry all but Greenlee, Graham, and Pinal counties, and McClintock tells us that Whedon carried the latter, his home county, by a margin of 60 to 1. I will wrap up the primary by simply observing that McClintock says that, again, we find a very light vote, meaning that turnout was still lacking somewhat. But the gauntlet was only half done. Now Hunt had to convince all of Arizona that he deserved to lead them over the Republican candidate. Speaking of which, that party had nominated a man named Edmund W. Wells from Prescott, as their nominee. Wells is a pretty interesting guy and a true Arizona pioneer, so like I did with Whedon, I want to make sure to flesh him out a bit as well. He was born in Ohio in 1846, but moved with his family out to Iowa and possibly Denver before he found himself in Prescott in 1864. Wells was only 18 at this point and Prescott was little more than a mining camp. But this is where he would stay, despite his father moving back to Iowa. The active and smart young man would read law, as they said at the time, and eventually was admitted to the bar in 1875. The legal profession would be his home for decades, as first he clerked for the district court and would later serve as district attorney and assistant U.S. attorney for Northern Arizona. McClintock goes so far as to say that he was one of the territory's foremost lawyers and an expert in constitutional law. President Benjamin Harrison appointed him to the Territorial Supreme Court, where he would be engaged in a great project to codify the territory's laws. However, after 1890, Wells seems to have turned his energy away from the law and more toward business and politics. To take the former first... He had become very active in mining, not surprising considering that Prescott started as a mining camp, but he also diversified into cattle, another prudent move given the times, and then into banking. Wells would become part of several banks in both Prescott and Phoenix, and even served as president of the Bank of Arizona in Prescott. All these various ventures served to make him incredibly prominent in the community, in addition to being quite wealthy. In fact, his Wikipedia page says that he was known as Arizona's first millionaire. Of course, there was no citation for that, and I couldn't verify it in any other source, so you can take that with as many grains of salt you need to believe the person who wrote Wells' Wikipedia page. So, all in all, he was the typical businessman and jurist that the Republican Party of the age would nominate for the state's top spot. However, what I really love about Wells' bid for the governorship is that it was a replay of another match between he and Hunt. I didn't mention this at the time because I already felt I was spending too much time on ultimately irrelevant politics, but Wells was actually the nominee the Republicans put forward to be president of the Constitutional Convention. You know, the guy that Hunt demolished in a straight-party vote? Oh, and Wells was also one of those delegates who refused to sign the Constitution as written because of how pro-labor and progressive it was. So the race for governor really starts to feel like a rematch between Hunt and Wells, but this time the stakes were higher. The campaign was not an especially dirty one, but mud-throwing, that timeless political tactic, was definitely present. Wells' supporters were quick to jump on Hunt, calling him illiterate and ambitious, but also tried to paint him with the word socialist. This came about because of his incredibly pro-labor stances, but also because a majority of the declared socialists in Arizona had voted for Hunt over Whedon in the primary. The illiterate jab was because of Hunt's poor working-class upbringing, self-education, and unrefined style something we'll get into next week when we do a deep dive into his life and times, and a well that his opponents would go to again and again. When Hunt declared that one of his first priorities would be putting judicial recall on the ballot, the Arizona Republican sneered, quote, Of course Mr. Hunt will get someone else to write that message. The writing of messages, or anything else for that matter that requires proper spelling and the arranging of words into sentences, is not Mr. Hunt's strong point. End quote. Meanwhile, the Republicans praised their candidate as a man of business who would bring prestige to the office and make investors feel good about sinking money into Arizona. On the other side, Hunt was able to hit Wells with his refusal to sign the Arizona Constitution, which had a lot of popular support, and floated around a supposed quote by Wells that the happiest moment of his life was when he refused to sign the document. In contrast, Hunt could champion his leading role in producing the Constitution, his progressive credentials, and his ideas for what to do once in office. These included making sure the Corporation Commission got up and running to keep those corporate boogeymen in check, making sure Arizona got its judicial recall, and better education for the state's children, including free textbooks. He was lucky enough to get endorsements from prominent national figures including newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, whose Los Angeles examiner was actually very well read in Arizona. Addressing the charges that he was too blue-collared to hold the office he sought, Hunt compared himself to Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Jackson, populist figures known for their rough backgrounds and lack of proper education. One of the funny things about this campaign, however, is that Hunt and his supporters had to portray him as not too radical, but not too conservative. After the Democrats had made sure to nip the formation of a labor party, which we covered back in episode 166, they next had to worry about the formation of a socialist party, and that it would siphon off pro-labor votes from Democratic candidates. So while widely proclaiming to everyone that Hunt was not socialist and not anti-business, his propaganda turned right around and was telling socialists that Hunt was as pro-labor as any of them. It was a nearly impossible bouncing act and really didn't quite work out as these socialists would field their own candidate for governor, much to the consternation of Hunt's backers. After all the posturing and politicking was done, it was time for Arizonans to head to the polls to decide who would lead their new state. Again, Hunt would defeat Wells, though it wasn't the one-sided shellacking that the Constitutional Convention presidency vote had been. The margin was 11,123 to 9,126, with the socialist candidate getting over 1,200 votes. Hunt had won over the four Phoenix precincts by only one vote. But was able to lock in his lead outside of the Capitol. While Hunt's victory is notable, especially considering how long he would remain in office, what's more telling is that this first statewide election was a Democratic landslide, with not a single Republican being elected to a state office. And McClintock makes sure to tell us that the plurality of votes over Republican candidates ranged anywhere between 500 and 3 thousand votes. Beside Hunt, we also find ushered into office Marcus Aurelius Smith for one of Arizona's U.S. Senate seats. This was a bit unusual, as Smith was from the non-progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and had actually been vocally dubious about the Constitution as written. However, it appears that he was able to put some of his differences with men like Hunt aside and work together as part of the unified Democratic Party. More than one of my sources suggests that Smith was elected to a Senate seat due to his longtime service to Arizona as its congressional delegate and his fierce advocacy for statehood. McClintock adds in a nice little anecdote that when Smith was elected by the first state legislature because the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution allowing for the popular election of senators wouldn't be passed until the following year— His nomination in the state Senate was done by John T. Hughes. John was the son of Louis Hughes, the former territorial governor, who had not been very simpatico with Smith, so apparently some old fences were mended. Smith's colleague in the Senate was Henry Fountain Ashurst. So Henry Ashurst is another colorful character that I simply must spend some time on. Born in Nevada in 1874... Ashurst would soon find himself an Arizonan by virtue of his parents moving the family to Williams when he was still a toddler. From an early age, he showed signs of ambition, including writing Henry Fountain Ashurst, U.S. Senator from Arizona, into one of his spelling books when he was 10. However, his life seemed destined for the rough and tumble sort typical of northern Arizona at the time, as he would drop out of school to be a ranch hand. He became interested in law while working at a Flagstaff jail and picked up a copy of Blackstone's Commentaries, an influential book talking about English common law of the day. While working labor jobs such as a lumberjack near Los Angeles, Ashurst would also pursue studies and was admitted to the bar in 1897. He also began to get into politics, serving in the territorial legislature, becoming district attorney for Coconino County, and eventually sitting in the 1910 Constitutional Convention. Here, he appears to have charted a middle course when at all possible to offend the least amount of people so that he could achieve his boyhood dream of becoming a U.S. Senator. His ability to see where the wind was blowing and make sure he was always on the popular side of things led to him being dubbed the Dean of Inconsistency, one of his many, many sobriquets. Another thing about Ashurst is that he was, in a word, loquacious. I know I could have given a less obscure word to sum up what a talker and orator he was, but given that he was such a fine orator and a grand talker, I thought using any other word than loquacious would have been an insult. Ashurst loved Shakespeare, and grew to love the spoken word in general, becoming a man not only known for the gift of gab, but for using gilded words. Other nicknames attached to him during his time in office were Five-Syllable Henry, the Silver-Tongued Sunbeam of the Painted Desert, the Silver-Tongued Orator of the Colorado, and the Boy Orator of Bill Williams Mountain. He would serve in the U.S. Senate until being unseated in a primary in 1940. The town of Ashurst off of U.S. 70 in southeastern Arizona is named for him, having been called that in 1918 when a post office was officially established. But I suppose the person we really should be talking about right now is who was elected to Arizona's only seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. Because it's finally time to introduce... Carl Hayden. Hayden was a looming figure in Arizona and national politics for more than a half a century, but his start really begins here at the election of 1912. He had been born in 1877 as the son of none other than Judge Charles Trumbull Hayden, the founder of Hayden's Ferry and the modern town of Tempe. Young Carl grew up in the town his father had founded and would eventually graduate in 1896 from the Tempe Normal School, or as we know it today, Arizona State University. After that, he traveled to California, where he would attend Stanford. Though I have to smile because McClintock, in his biographical sketch of Hayden, makes sure to call the school by its actual name of Leland Stanford Junior University. Here, he studied politics, but had to return home before completing his studies to take care of the family business due to his father's serious illness and eventual death. From here, he began to dabble in politics, serving on the Tempe Town Council where he helped establish a municipal water system. Then he served a turn as treasurer of Maricopa County before being elected to two terms as its sheriff. Most sources note that he was an efficient and popular sheriff, and McClintock tells us that in each of his elections, he won by more than 1,000 votes, doubling the amount of votes that his opponents received. Through it all, he was a lifelong Democrat, and was appointed the head of Arizona's delegation to the party convention in St. Louis in 1904. Then came statehood and the election of 1911, which saw him ride his popular support right into Congress. And this is where he passes from notable politician from Arizona's past into someone who would stamp himself on the state and the nation. Hayden would serve seven terms in the House before being elected to the Senate in 1926. Once there, he would not leave until his retirement in 1969. During his time in Congress, he would chair several important committees and be especially focused on reclamation projects, something we'll talk more about when eventually the San Carlos Dam is finally built. I should also throw in here that he helped get the Central Arizona project, which today brings in water from the Colorado River to Maricopa, Pinal, and Pima counties approved by Congress. He also was known for his non-flashy demeanor and characterized himself as a workhorse, not a show horse. What I actually didn't know before doing this little sketch of him is that he would serve as President Pro Tempore of the Senate, putting him actually third in line in the presidential order of succession. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy, Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson, and other notable politicians were at the Westward Hoe in Phoenix for the occasion of Hayden's 50th year in Congress. Like I said, he retired in 1969, which at the time made him the longest serving member of Congress. You can bet that we'll have a lot more to say about Carl Hayden as we move forward. But I want to come back around to the man whose career we have been following, George W.P. Hunt. After his victory, Hunt then had to sit on his hands for two months to await Taft actually signing off on statehood. In the days leading up to this, Hunt had let it be known that he wanted a simple inauguration, though this would lead to one of the set pieces of his political career and a little bit of a backlash. Because as I mentioned last episode, Hunt was staying in the Ford Hotel about a mile and a half from the Capitol building when the news came ringing out at 8.55 a.m., don't you know, that Arizona had become a state. Hunt appeared in the hotel's lobby at 11.15 a.m. to an enthusiastic crowd and then began walking to the Capitol building. Refusing the offer of cars and even a streetcar to conduct him, Hunt decided to proceed to the Capitol on foot, with the crowd following and growing increasingly larger behind him. McClintock makes sure to tell us that there were no uniforms, police I'm guessing, in this crowd, and that there was definitely no military escort. Now this quote-unquote stunt of pedestrianism that was quote-unquote spectacular in its simplicity was supposedly a way for Hunt to set an example of thrift for his new state and fellow citizens. However, many of his political rivals decried the walk as what they thought it obviously was, a stunt. A stunt. They would make great hay out of the fact that in coming years, Hunt would never walk again. Instead, he was chauffeured around in a $3,000 car that cost the taxpayers $300 a month. Just before noon on statehood day, Hunt was sworn in as governor and gave his opening address. In this, he declared that Arizona was progressive and democratic and that he would hold to those ideals. Additionally, he pledged to running a simple, efficient, and frugal government That would be open to everyone. And believe it or not, I'm going to leave things here for this week, as next week we'll explore a little more in-depth how well Hunt kept those promises. You may have noticed that I just sort of started slipping Hunt into the narrative without giving him much background at all, and just hinting at both his backstory and legacy. I did this because I always planned to go back and dedicate an entire episode to Hunt, where he came from, and his impact on Arizona. The first governor would have a largely successful, but definitely rocky career at the top of Arizona's political food chain, which I feel is a story in and of itself. So join me next week as we dock the state narrative to pick up on the life and times of George Wiley Paul Hunt and see how the runaway son of a drunken farmer became one of the defining political forces of his age. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.